I have been coaching for approximately 15 years. It has been a wonderful experience. I like the fact that I had the opportunity to coach a very diverse group of people. A very diverse group of people. And besides, I I would say less than five people uh, that I coach didn't finish the coaching sessions. Less than five. The other ones that did, I saw the transformation. I saw the healing. I saw the sense of freedom that they got to uh, achieve. And they begin to thrive and grow. And I, I thank God uh, for the opportunity. And I really do thank God. It wasn't my coaching skills. It wasn't my coaching abilities. No. I was a vessel used by God to help heal people. And one of the primary focuses of the coaching that I do is to heal. Is to heal people who have been hurt in one way or another. And to help them to break from the bondage of that hurt. To become the person that God created them to be. And to reach their full potential. And that's something that I always wanted. And that was triggered. um, It was triggered by when my mother died. My mother had ovarian cancer. And when we found out about it, she was at stage four. And they only gave her a year to live. And, And she did die 11 months later. Um, very, very, very painful for me. But one thing I really remembered after her funeral, the one thing I remember as I was looking at, um, just looking at the casket and everything, is that my mother didn't know how beautiful she was. And I mean by society standards, my mother was beautiful prior to the um, the the symptoms of the cancer. She was she was a beautiful woman, extremely intelligent. She was artistic too. She had a lot of artist abilities that she wasn't aware of. There was a lot of things that she went to her grave with that the world never got to see. I didn't get to see a lot of it. My mother was a very quiet person. A lot of things I found out after she passed away. Uh, she was she was very quiet, very withdrawn, and she she kept a lot of things quiet. I didn't know a lot about her history, a lot about her past. I didn't know a lot about anything. A lot of it I found out after she passed away, and the different things that happened to her that put her in that that place of silence and shame, and that's how she lived. And so it was after that, and that's like, Lord, I don't ever want to see another person go to their grave not knowing the truth about who they are and who you created them to be. And it was that point, that's what catapulted me into reaching out to people. That's why I started doing a lot of outreach um, ministry work first. And that's how, actually, that's how the ministry grew because I did more outreach than anything. Uh, yeah, I did the workshops. I did the classes. I did the, wrote the curriculums. I did a lot of things, but being out, out where people were, where people were hurt and I was able to help them and, um, 
help them reach their full potential and to see the change that God uh, wanted to do with their life. Well, the one thing that <clears throat> I always ask people when I was coaching them, and it was always uh, it was always a challenging time because I asked them, who are you? Who are you? And there were times, and, and I'll even share this, there are times I took a mirror, I had a full-length mirror, and I would have people stand in front of it, and they didn't want to stand in front of it. They did not want to stand in front of the mirror. Some people, it broke something in them where they began to talk more. They began to share because they had not experienced the shame of confronting themselves. That was very challenging because it's easy to hide. Society teaches us how to hide. When people are hurt, they create these, the survival mode. They go into survival mode and they begin to make these defense mechanisms to keep them safe. They don't want to hurt like that again. And that's understandable. I can understand why people don't want to hurt like that because um, it's painful. And the one thing that, um, that I see is that they try to avoid that. So one thing that people do, and this is another key point that we talk about in our coaching sessions, is um, people separating their head from their heart. When there's a head-heart disconnect, then you have a person who either they're being um, moved mainly by their head or primarily by their heart, when it's supposed to be a balance of both. And that's the part that we don't see a lot of, is that it has to be the balance of the head and the heart. It's not supposed to be the extreme one or the other, because it'll lead you down some not-so-good roads. Now, when somebody's operating primarily by the head, which is a lot of people, what a lot of people do when they've been hurt or traumatized at some point, and they don't want to deal with that, that pain, and they just want to shove it away and keep it a secret then what happens they shut down their heart and they shift to shift the gear to operate out of their mind because it's easy to manipulate manipulate and control situations see i can manufacture a world by setting up the boundaries that i want and so i only invite people into those into my into my arena who can function according to the boundaries that i set they don't, I don't want them getting toward my heart. And that's one of the challenges I face when I'm coaching people. Because God will reveal and show me that there's something behind what I see. There's something behind what they're saying. And when I get behind there or get closer, they want to pull back. Now, I had some people who had courage to, let's pull, hey, let's just go straight through it. Let's go straight through I had some that didn't. Some who got very angry at me and they wanted to they wanted to just run away from the situation. And some did run, but some came back. And we plunged through. And when they got through that, the change was phenomenal. Now, dealing with the head-heart disconnect is that when you look at yourself, that means that you're you're just placating and pretending that you have that emotional safety and comfort. It's not always there when it's that that disconnect. Now, when you deal with somebody who's dealing with their emotions all the time, 
If you trigger any part of their emotion, there is chaos all the time with their emotions, all the time. There is no boundary with their emotions. They just, just all over the place. So everything is defined by how they feel. And some of you know that's a, that's a scary thing to do, to be, to, to, to operate according to your feelings. You can just get, I don't feel like going to work today. I don't feel like driving the car. I don't feel like cleaning the house. I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel like meeting anybody new. I don't feel like, or the opposite. Ooh, I really like them. They're a murderer. Well, they're nice, though. I like them. I like the way they make me feel. When I talk to people and when I do assessments and go through sessions, the one thing I always listen for is if they say, well, I think or I feel. When they tell me one of those exclusively, almost all the time, then I know that they're in, they're in the head-heart disconnect and it's something that needs to be changed. I always know it. It's easy to, I mean, it's, it's just listening and I can hear it and I can see what they do and we'll have that. And then the moment we deal with it, okay, well, that's one wall down. Let's deal with it. So I, I, I do that a lot. And then the funny part is to see how my head heart disconnect, how I functioned with that a lot. And my thing was, I gave people the permission to tell me who I was, what I was supposed to do, what I wasn't supposed to do. I just tried to get people to like me. That was my biggest thing, is that I always tried to get people to like me. And you know what? It didn't work. (laughs) I thought it was working. It seemed to be working for a while. But it didn't work. I sacrificed so much of my life to just have people like me. I've always been like that. That's one of the biggest things for me is I want I want people. I like people. I like watching people. I like talking to people. I like being around people. It's just I'm a people person. I, I really am. Um, but I let people. I gave them permission. And notice how I say it, they did, I can't say that they just took advantage of me because, yes, they did, but that wasn't the first step. The first step is I gave them permission to do it. I knew they were lying, but I gave them permission to keep lying. I knew they were taking advantage of me, but I gave them permission to keep taking advantage of me. I thought it was just they were using me. Well, yeah, I knew they were using me, but I gave them permission to continue to do that. I had a friend tell me one time, it was a, a lady talking about her situation when her husband wasn't nice and, and while we were working, she would tell us all these horrible things he was doing, he was saying, and this and the other. And one of my coworkers said, he just listened very calmly, and he said, when I go home, I go up my, go up my walkway and I go up the steps and I wipe my feet on my doormat before I enter into the house. And so the the lady looked at me like, okay, and? And he said, do you know why I do that? And she said, why you wipe your feet on your doormat? He said, yeah. And she said, no, what, why? And he said, because I can. See, we have to understand, if I've been in an abusive situation for years, then I have to realize that I've been in an abusive relationship for years because I allowed it to happen. I chose to let it happen. 
I did that. So do I do I take do I mean that does that mean that the abuser doesn't have to be dealt with because that no, they should be dealt with. But the part I have to look at, I allowed it to happen. I saw what they were doing. I knew what they were doing. I let them continue to do that. Now, it's it's something for somebody to do something to me once. I'm like, oh, I'm not doing that again. Okay, then I made a choice. I set a healthy boundary to protect myself. But if I let them do it twice, well, now, don't do it again. I'll, I'm not going to do it again. And they do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again. I have to look at, I allow that to happen. So, which means that before I deal with about the, the, the situation with the abuser, let me deal with myself, the enabler. Oh, that's the key thing, the enabler. Because I keep hearing people talk about narcissism, the narcissist this, the narcissist that, the narcissist, the narcissist, the narcissist. The one thing about the narcissist that came to my mind, because it kept bothering me. And I kept trying to figure out, why is everybody only talking about the narcissist? I don't hear them saying how the narcissist has the power to do that. In narcissism, you cannot be a narcissist without somebody somewhere at some point in time giving you the authority and the ability to do it. The authority and ability. It takes an enabler for a narcissist to continue narcissism. If you feed something, it will grow. If you don't feed it, it will die. With narcissism, we can't just keep talking about how horrible the narcissist is. No, we have to turn that mirror around and look at, okay, we have an enabler that needs some help. We has we have an enabler that needs some attention. We have we have an enabler that needs to confront some issues. What made you an enabler? Then let's talk about the narcissist. Because I'm empowering the enabler to put a stop to narcissistic behavior. So I look at the things in my life. I had to take responsibilities for a lot of things that I allowed to happen to me. A lot of things that people said to me. A lot of things that people did to me. A lot of stuff that was taken from me. I had to look back, why did I do that? Why did I allow that to happen? And when I began that journey, that's when things began to change. People did not know how to handle it, but it did change. When I began to set uh, boundaries, healthy boundaries for my life, and empower other people to do the same thing, not just women, not just children, of people, period, because there were some men that needed to be empowered uh, to take responsibility for their lives, so that they can come out of. I would, I would, I'll use this as an example: um, narcissism, because we keep we we keep highlighting men in narcissistic behaviors, but we don't deal with women that are in narcissistic behavior. We don't deal with women who are abusive. I've known some women to beat the stew out of some men, beat them badly, physically and emotionally. And he enabled it and allowed it to happen. So what I was saying before is that 
I had to take responsibility for what was happening to me. I didn't like it. I didn't like the way it felt. I, I, it was demeaning. It, it, it dealt with my esteem. All of that, but I kept allowing it to happen. And when I hear about women that are in abusive relationships or they stay in a relationship, they stay in an unhealthy relationship almost to the day they die. They bypass or they miss healthy opportunities to have healthy relationships because they stayed stuck in an unhealthy situation. And why did they do that? Because nobody stopped and helped them to see a way out. Now I don't I don't I don't deal with people saying, well, they were just stupid to do no, I don't do that. Human behavior is something that we have to we have really have to look at and go beyond just calling somebody stupid. Because that's not the truth and that's not the case. I don't believe in demeaning someone because they didn't know how to make a change or they didn't have the courage to make the change or they didn't have the tools to make the change, they didn't have the power to make whatever it is. It takes it takes someone to sit and say, hey, have you ever thought about this? Now, whatever choice they make, hey, that's their choice. With children, I always had a theology that I'm not going to stand by and just watch stuff happen to children. If I can intervene in any type of way, if I can make that call, if I can get online and send a report, I will do what I have to do to help a child. But when an adult is making a choice to continue to do something and they don't want my intervention, then my only intervention is prayer. That's my only intervention. But I don't I don't talk about them. I don't call them stupid. I don't put them down. I don't do any of that. I ask questions. I seek answers. I seek real answers, not the other stuff. See, because a lot of times people, especially when they're in that head-heart disconnect, they become very, very cunning and giving the words that will keep us from going further into the situation and to dig deep into the trauma to bring out real, true transformation. They can bypass it. They can put up and say almost anything. And some people, some people will sit back and let them do it. I don't do that. If I miss something, I'll come back to it. It's like, well, I have a question about this. And when I look at even myself, I had to deal with, deal with some, ask myself, some hard questions. I had to deal with my own actions and my own attitudes. And why did I allow them to do what they did to me? Why did I allow them to do that? And I was praying about that one time and I came up with an answer. It came back to me and I was like, oh my gosh, there it is. Sometimes we have to, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes we have to go all the way back to something that was said to us when we were children. Something that was said to us. Something that was done to us a long time ago. Because as a child, we're like a sponge. We take in everything we see, everything that's said. We just take the stuff in unless there's some other kind of intervention to stop that. We just take it in. When I was younger, I was told, and this was by a relative, I was told that I need to try to be like this other person. 
She's pretty. She's smart. She's social. You should be like her. You should try to act like her. Ding. I set off on a journey to try to be pretty, smart, and social. I tried to mimic what I saw and what was said to me because when my relative told me that what that meant was that they were happy with the other person, what the way the other person was, but they were not happy about me. See, they, they gave approval of the other person, but they disapproved of me. See, all of this, see, things like that, it wasn't until I pulled back the layers. You have to pull back the layers and to go back and see what set me off on that pattern. What set me off with that pattern on that pathway to try to do this all the time. So that's why I let people say things. That's why I let people do things. There was two situations. It was like a competition thing. And both times I, I, one time I definitely won. And then everybody was looking at me. All, all the, I was young. All the kids was looking at me. And I was staring at me and I was scared because it's like they didn't like me because I won. It was a coloring contest. We, they gave us a piece of paper. Whoever won the coloring contest won a payday. Well, I won. I won. I just, I won. And everybody looked at me. That I offered, I offered almost every kid in that room a part of my payday. Instead of just enjoying my prize, my payday, I gave some to them. Why? Because I was trying to get them to like me and to approve of me and to show me that I was okay, that I had a sense of belonging. The other time, let's fast forward. I was in college, and it was a um, one of their extracurricular groups, and their study groups, and they had to vote for president and vice president. I was nominated uh, for president, and this other this other young man, he was nominated for president. They wanted they wanted him. Some people wanted him to be the president. They wanted me to be the president. So it was it wasn't a battle. It wasn't anything negative, but I liked him. I thought he was cute. <laughs> I liked him. I said, so I'm going to vote for him so he'll feel good enough to like me. That's what my thought was. So when they were tallying up the votes and I was sitting there looking at them, whatever, I saw the piece of paper that I put in. My vote made the difference. Instead of me voting for myself, I voted for him. And he won by one vote. He won by my vote. See, I did not have, I did not have the foreknowledge that it was okay if I won. And that I could still be liked and approved of if I won. I could still have a sense of belonging if I won. But I didn't see that. I didn't do that. So I looked at it, and that's how my life was in relationships. I let people do different things to me. I let them do it. I had uh, some friends, one of them, and they told me about it later. They, uh, I knew that they didn't like me, and I knew that they were they would say negative things about me all the time. But I still want to say, okay, hey, we're friends, we're friends. They spit in my lemonade. They spit in my lemonade. And they've watched me drink it. 
And they laughed about it. It was funny to them. I had another situation where uh, I was in I was in another competition, and I had to find find a talent. I couldn't find a talent, and so I said, "Well, I'm going to sing. I'm going to. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing. I like singing. I'm going to sing." And I told I told someone that, and they started laughing. They said, "You can't sing." And do you know what happened after that? I stopped singing. I wouldn't even sing in the shower. I wouldn't sing. I just stopped singing. And that went on for, I think it was two or three years. And then one time I was, uh, I was working on something. I was at college. And I was humming. And I sung one verse or something. I didn't know somebody was listening to me. And this guy came up and he said, you have a beautiful voice. And you know what I, my response to him was? I said, I can't sing. His response was the turning point for me. He said, who told you that you can't sing? You have a beautiful voice. When he said that, I didn't tell him the story about what happened, but it made me go home and think. That's when I stopped singing when I was told that I couldn't sing. After he told me that, and I realized what I had done, Hey, I was sorry for what I did, but I acknowledged what I did, and I went back to singing again. And from that time, I've traveled with speakers, and I sang. Like before they ministered, I I sang for them. And I had other people ask me to sing for them. See, it wasn't, it was because of what somebody said. I gave somebody the authority to tell me if I was okay, if I was approved, if I was liked, if I was beautiful, if I was this. I did that. And then I got mad. I'm like, I'm not doing that again. I'm not doing that again. And so what I look at is I have the authority God gave me the authority and the ability to make a choice. I don't have to be somebody's victim all the time. I don't have to be a victim all the time. I don't have to be unliked. I don't have to be mistreated. I don't have to be inferior. I don't have to do any of that. I have a choice. I have been given an option. It was, uh, this is, it's, it's so funny. It's funny now. It wasn't funny then. I was going through a lot of health issues. And um, since my mother died of ovarian cancer, then I started having symptoms. They looked similar to her. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, I got over. I was thinking all of that. Had to go through all these tests and different things. Um, and then they found out that I had fibroid tumors. They sent me to a specialist. Went to the specialist. Went to two different specialists, actually, and spoke with them. And they would tell me these options of things that I could do. And both of them, both the different options they told me, it was high risk and it could cause other problems. And I didn't, I didn't feel right to me. Well, the second one that I went to, they told me, they said, well, you're past, you probably already had all the children you're going to have. I said, I haven't had any. Oh, 
Well, then you can get a hysterectomy. And I'm like, I don't want a hysterectomy. Well, you're past childbearing years, so you really don't have any other options. Something inside of me clicked when they said that. I am so grateful now what they said to me then, because the the moment they said that there was not a lapse in time, I didn't drop my head. I stood straight up, straight up, and I looked at straight in the face. I said, I always have options. I left that, and then she jumped back. She said, well, I tell you, we're going to let you, we're going to let you think, and you tell us what you're going to do. They gave me this pamphlet information. I threw it, I threw it away on my way out. I cried all the way home because this is what it was. And I, I was praying. I'm like, God, I don't know what my options are, but I believe I have options. I always have options. And I just kept crying. And that's all I kept saying. I always have options. See, that person's statement, that, that it's like it broke a chain off of me because that's what I lived under. Like I didn't have options. I didn't have choice. I had to live. I had to take whatever somebody gave me. I had to just deal with whatever somebody did to me. I had to just know I have options. And that's what I accepted. That's what I believed. And I began to pray and I began to do research and I began to look up everything and and all of this. And I was given all these uh, nutritional things because somebody was giving rid of them. They wasn't using them. And all of them had to do with womb health. So I started taking them. I became a vegetarian to send the other. A year later to the month that I was told that I didn't have any options, my daughter was born. See, I have options. You have options. You have to believe that you've been given the ability and the authority to stop any abusive behavior that's coming towards you. You don't have to accept any of it. You have to accept that you are somebody and that you have options.